he ends Paul's great letter to the church at Rome. In case you're wondering, it's taken us 39 sermons to get through it. That's not quite Martin Lloyd-Jones territory. Now, if you know Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in, in the United Kingdom for many years, and his sermon series on the book of Romans takes a chapter for, it's printed out, and each chapter is its own book. Uh, he would park on a verse for three, four sermons at a time. Uh, so we didn't quite go that slow, but it's been, it's been an enjoyable time looking at God's word in this great book that he has given us. So our sermon text this morning is Romans 16, the entire chapter. You can find that printed out in your bulletin or follow along in your Bible. Hear God's word. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chinchere, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentile give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoner. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, a fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perses, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncreatus, the legion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as so do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasure, and our brother Quartus greets you. Now to him 
who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your, wo your word. I do ask now that your spirit would open our hearts, give us understanding, and show us once again the face of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that for those who know you, that you would strengthen their faith and build them up through your word, that you would encourage them and edify them, that you would meet them wherever they are, be it in suffering and sorrow or in joy. And Father, for those who know you not, I pray that you would speak faith into their hearts, that you would give them new life through the power of your spirit, for you alone can do this. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Amen. And so again, here we are at the end of this long but joyous journey. And by no means have we explored every corner and seen every facet of this great gem of Paul's letter to the Roman church. But we have seen Jesus. We have seen the gospel. Or as Paul says in this letter, the gospel of God. He has taken us from the depths of the darkness of human depravity to the heights of our salvation in Jesus Christ alone. He began his letter to the Romans explaining the universality of sin and corruption that all people stand condemned as sinners before God because all have broken his law and fallen short of his glory and all have failed to worship him as the God uh, as God as he deserves and instead they worship everything else but through that darkness Paul shined the light of God's grace that Jesus has delivered us up from our trespasses and raised us was raised for us for our justification and we are justified by God's grace as his gift which means that he alone has sovereignly made us his own. Those who were once not God's people, he has now made his people, calling both Jews and Gentiles, people from all the earth, into his kingdom. And now being united together through Jesus, all God's people serve each other as living sacrifices and thus serve Christ their king until that great day when he appears and completes this work he has started. Now Romans 16 is the postscript to all of that. The, the postscript of this great letter about our great God who is doing great things in this world for his glory and his name's sake. What's a postscript? Well, we don't write many handwritten letters anymore, do we? Um, in this day of email and text messages and Zoom. And the purpose, of course, of a postscript was, is to communicate additional information after the close of the letter. And as such, one might be tempted to simply just kind of gloss over a postscript 
and not give it as much thought or think that it's less important than the main body of the letter. But if we do that with Paul's postscripts and his letters to the churches that are part of God's word, we are missing out on so much. This postscript at the end of Romans is the final amen. It was written in a warm and pastoral manner by the hand of Paul to encourage and give final instruction to the Roman church and show them once again that they are indeed part of God's great plan of redemption. You see, this postscript of Romans shows us, those of us who belong to Christ in faith, that we, united to Jesus, are living our lives in the postscript of the gospel. That means we have a new family, a new focus, and we are part of a new temple that is God's people. And all of that is rooted in our hope as God's people. So belonging to Jesus changes everything. And Paul's postscript here reminds us, just as it reminds the church of Rome, of these great truths. And so it's really easy to divide this, three, this chapter under three headings. All of them are colored by the gospel. I'll give them to you and then we'll jump into them. There is a gospel welcome, there is a gospel warning, and there is gospel worship. Real simple. So first of all, Paul's gospel welcome. In verses 1 through 16, we see Paul firing off greeting after greeting to individual believers who were in the church at Rome. And if you are like most people, when you come to a list of long names like this in the Bible, you probably pass over them quickly in your Bible reading, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, after all, they're usually hard to pronounce. We aren't familiar with many of these people. We don't know who they are. Uh, and we kind of wonder, how does this fit in with the rest of Scripture? What's the point behind all this? Well, you see, it is important, though, that we consider these long list of names that you see in the Bible. After all, they are part of God's inspired Scripture, His Word. And they lay out for us God's uh, redemptive thread throughout all history as he unfolds his plans to save a covenant people from their sin and sorrowing and make all that is wrong right again. Now there's a couple of things to notice about this list of names that Paul uh, gives as he sends greetings in this gospel welcome. And that is both the diversity and the unity of these names, of these people. So first of all, the diversity, we see here that there are both men and women listed. Paul begins by giving a word of commendation to the Roman church to receive Phoebe, a woman who was a great servant of the church from a small village near Corinth. Phoebe had done a great service for the Roman church as she came to them because she was the bearer of this letter. She couldn't just type up an email and attach it as a file and send it to them. No, she had to cross at least 800 miles of Roman roads from Corinth to Rome, sail across the Adriatic Sea, 
to deliver to them this letter from the hand of Paul, which was God's inspired written word to the people in the Roman church. But there are many other women and men mentioned here as well. We see they come from the same family, some of them as these two sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa, are mentioned. We see there are married couples, Andronicus and Junia, as well as Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, who uh, we know mentored and discipled Barnabas, who worked with Paul so that Barnabas would have a better understanding of the gospel of Christ. We also note there are different ethnicities amongst all these names. Paul calls Adronicus and Junia, as well as Herodian, his kinsmen, meaning they were Jews like him. And these other names are mainly Greek and Roman or of some other ethnicity. There's also a great diversity in ages represented here. We see that the church in Rome was multi-generational as Paul sends greetings to Rufus and his mother, who he says was like a mother to him as well, a mother in the faith. Later, Paul will send greetings from Timothy, who was a younger man in the service of the Lord with Paul. Another remarkable aspect of this diversity that we see reflected here is the backgrounds of all these different believers. In verse 11, Paul says, greet Herodian, which suggests that he was part of Herod's family or the, the Her Herod household. It is also believed that Aristobulus was part of Herod's household, possibly even being the very grandson of Herod the Great. And then Paul mentions slaves as well as free men. Amplius, Urbanus, and Stachys, those were all common slave names. And Narcissus that he mentions in verse 11 was probably a wealthy, powerful, influential Roman who was, uh, uh, became a Christian and witnessed of Christ and was put to death by the Emperor Nero. Nevertheless, Paul sends greetings to his household. And more can be said about these people, this list of names of whom Paul sends these apostolic greetings to show the great diversity that is there in the church. Men and women, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, those of royal blood, they are all included. But not only is there a great diversity present in this list of names, we see that they are united together in great unity. And the unity is almost unbelievable. For here in Rome, we see there are the grandsons of kings and slaves brought together in one body, one community, one people. And what can make that happen? Only Jesus. Notice how often Paul uses the term, or a term similar to it, in Christ, or in the Lord, or of the Lord, as he pens these greetings. Verse 2, the Romans are to welcome Phoebe in the Lord. Verse 3, Prisca and Aquila are fellow workers in Christ. Epinetus was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Adronicus and Julia were in Christ before Paul. Uh, in verse 8, Ampliatus is beloved in the Lord. In the Lord, he says, greet the household of Narcissus. And the two sisters in verse 12 
are said to be workers in the Lord. Rufus is chosen in the Lord. Again, Jesus is the center of all of Paul's greetings. And that's why this is a gospel welcome. Christ has united all these people through their diversity, through all their differences, and brought them together as one people of God, fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers, rich men and poor, Jews and Gentiles. This list of names is very similar to the genealogies you see in the Old Testament. Those genealogies that you see in the Old Testament were meant to show God's people how God preserves his covenant from generation to generation and keeps his promises down through the ages. And then those genealogies all lead us to the person of Jesus Christ, God's only son. And that's why you see both in Matthew and Luke's Gospels a genealogy of Jesus Christ. But what's unique about Paul's list of names here is they're not united by bloodlines, by family bloodlines, but by the blood of the Lamb who was slain for the sins of his people and has risen and now lives forevermore. You could say that this list of names in this gospel welcome is a new covenant genealogy made of people united together in Jesus. In other words, this gospel welcome, what it does is it proclaims a new family, the family of God. And so Paul displays then godly affection that you would expect of the family of God as he sends these greetings to the Roman church. And he says there in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now a kiss, of course, was a customary way of of greeting one another in that Greco-Roman world of the first century, much like a friendly handshake or a warm hug. Paul calls it holy or consecrated because it is now set apart as a, a token of Christian affection that reflects the love of Christ to his family, his church. And so Paul sending these greetings then uh, also sends greetings of the, all the churches, he says, to Rome. And he does this to show them that they are part of the church at large. They are not by themselves, but they are part of one family of God, God's eternal family of his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yes, this gospel welcome proclaims a new family. And that truth is still true to this day. You see, when you greet one another in Christ, you are proclaiming to one another that you belong to Christ. You're saying we are part of the same family. We belong to Jesus. He has made us his own. When you fellowship, it's not just a friendly get-together. Paul's greetings here were not just a, a mere hello, a friendly how you doing, but a celebration of what God had done to fulfill his promise to have a people for his name through Jesus, the mediator of this covenant. 
So when you fellowship, it is a proclamation of God's faithfulness to you together to keep his promise to have one people who belong to him. And though you are different and diverse and from different backgrounds, you are all united by faith in Christ. And so when we fellowship, what that does then is it actually builds up our faith. It encourages us together. We experience the bond, the true bond of heaven, a true community and communion that people long to have in their lives and is only made possible through the grace of the gospel. You see, fellowship is a means of God's grace to declare to you this truth that you belong to a new family. So don't neglect fellowship. Don't neglect gathering together and greeting one another with Christian affection and warm hospitality, not only to worship God, but to show that great affection and proclaim to one another who you are. The gospel welcome proclaims you are part of a new family. We also see here, though, that Paul has for the Romans in this postscript a gospel warning. So he writes in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Paul's letter has laid out with great clarity the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that ever-life-giving message of hope, and he very much desires then that it not be obscured or confused or silenced in any way because it is the good news this world needs to hear. And so with a deep sense of urgency, he warns the Roman church of those who would seek to undermine the gospel. His gospel warning is designed to preserve their new focus as believers upon Jesus Christ as their only Savior and Lord. And so he warns them thus that there are those who would seek to cause division within the church and to lay down obstacles that would cause the faith of God's people to crash and to burn. And he calls the Roman believers in this warning to do two things, to watch and to avoid these people that teach these dangerous, destructive doctrines. Watchfulness is a spiritual discipline. It speaks of the posture, of course, of a guard on a city wall who would keep careful vigilance over the gates and over the walls. And that posture of the church and believers is what they are called to have regarding the truth of the gospel. They are to watch over it, to guard it, to not let anything compromise it. And when a danger or a threat is identified, Paul says, avoid it, steer away from it. Go around it as if it's a deep pothole. Anything other than the gospel which Paul preached is a great danger. And so he says, mark it, avoid it at all costs. Because to follow anything else other than Jesus Christ and his gospel 
to hold on to anything else that claims to be truth other than the truth of God's word will bring great harm and destruction, Paul says, not just to individuals but to the church. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul warns that anyone who teaches another gospel contrary to the gospel of Christ as plainly revealed in the scriptures is to be accursed, he says. That is to say, cut off, apart from God. And he uses very similar language here in Romans 16 when he explains how these false teachers deceive. He says, these people, such persons, do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So to divide the church, to create obstacles of the faith by teaching what is contrary to the gospel, Paul says, is not to serve Christ, but is to serve oneself, one's own appetite. And if these teachings are so dangerous and so malicious, then the question we ask is why do the people listen to them? How do they even get into the church? And the answer is they look pretty good. They sound pretty good. In fact, they may even have elements of the truth within them. Paul says that they use smooth talk and flattery to gain a hearing and win people to their ideas. I think many of you know I used to live in Argentina and there was a little phrase there they'd use of somebody that was like this, that was just a smooth talker and could sell you anything. They said that he spoke with palabras caramelizadas, caramelized words, candy-coated words. Now, who else, though, do we see in the Bible who talks like that, who uses these candy-coated words and flattery appealing to one's pride in order to influence them to their side? Well, we see it, of course, in a serpent who was Satan. When he tempted Eve, he did not appear to her in some hideous form, but we're told that it was of great beauty. And he spoke in such a way so as to sound wise and true. And he appealed to, to Eve's pride with a flattering tongue so that she would eat of that forbidden fruit and might become like God. The point is that those who attempt to serve themselves rather than Christ and set forth these ideas that are contrary to the gospel they are behaving like Satan. That is diabolical. In serving themselves, they are serving Satan. And so Paul, in urgency, sounds forth this, this gospel warning to preserve the focus where it must be upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So again, look what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, for your obedience, you Romans, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So again, he, he 
he praises the obedience, the faithfulness of the Roman church to the gospel of Christ. And that faithfulness, their faith in Jesus, Paul says, is known by all the church. It's proclaimed to the world that God is indeed building something great amongst the nations of the earth because he has made his people to have a local body there in Rome. And Paul very much desires that testimony to God's faithfulness to continue. And so he wants the Romans then to be wise, to be discerning to what is good, what is true, what is right, and to be innocent or literally simple toward that which is evil so they would have nothing to do with it. He's calling then for purity and truth and in life and the church in Rome, purity that holds to Christ and keeps the singular focus upon him. And as they do that, as they do that, as they stay faithful to Christ, with that singular focus, it becomes indicative of the ongoing victory that God has as he triumphs over sin and Satan and death. And so Paul encourages his readers that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that is very interesting language. Where have you heard that before? Well, he's alluding back to God's promise of his covenant of grace all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You see, when Adam sinned, he was the representative of all humanity and thus we are all plunged into sin and corruption as a result of that. And as he sinned, that was the breaking of a covenant that God had made with Adam, who represented us, in which God promised life if both Adam and Eve would simply keep his law not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if they were to break that covenant, then would come the punishment of death, and that is exactly what happened because of their sin. But God in his grace, immediately after that fall, after that breaking of that old covenant, he does not leave humanity in a state of misery, but makes a new covenant, a covenant of grace. For God himself would keep all the obligations of this covenant for his people that he would save so they might be redeemed from the penalty of this corruption of their sin and death. And that very first promise of that covenant is right there in Genesis 3.15. As he speaks to Satan, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what Paul is referring to here in Romans 16. And of course, that offspring that would come, that would crush the head of Satan, is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, made like us, yet without sin. And through the cross, he triumphed over Satan and sin and death to free us from the curse of sin. But notice that Paul uses this language here in Romans 16, not in a direct reference to Jesus. He's speaking to the church because the church united to Jesus Christ 
triumphs with Jesus over Satan. The promise that Adam and Eve received as they stood in fear and trembling before the Lord because of their fallenness and their sin and their failure is being fulfilled now through Jesus in his church. And so from Abel to the sons of Abraham to Jacob and all the tribes of Israel and now spreading out into all the nations of the earth, that promise is being fulfilled. Satan is defeated and bruised and crushed. The church triumphant continues to tread upon his head whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully proclaimed. A gospel that is not tainted by these dangerous doctrines that divide and destroy, but a gospel that is the power of God to save all who believe. That's the po focus that Paul wants preserved through this warning. A focus upon Jesus and his triumphant victory over Satan. A victory in which the church shares because they are united to him. And we, just as that Roman church here, then are called to preserve the purity of the gospel through our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And that means we must be clear, clear about what we confess as our faith. We often think of doctrine or theology as stuffy ideas of theologians and seminarians that they debate back and forth over things like eschatological views views of the end time, or who wrote the book of Hebrews. But doctrine is far more than that. It is the foundation of all truth. And so we must get it right and heed Paul's warning to watch and to avoid those who would seek to persuade us to anything that is contrary to what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. Nor is doctrine a, a cold intellectual exercise devoid of piety and devotion to God. No, the doctrine that we confess, that we teach, it enraptures our heart. It drives us to warm worship and devotion. And so take the time then to study the scriptures and understand who God is and what he has done and what he is doing Take the time to know his word in detail and you will draw Christ clo closer to Christ. You will enjoy more of the peace of God who is crushing Satan's head beneath your feet as God's church. The gospel warning preserves this new focus of God's people that we have upon Jesus. And finally, in closing, Paul breaks into gospel worship. The final words that he writes in this letter are in verses 25 through 27 as he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long, ago, long ages and has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Now, if you recognize that as a doxology, an expression of praise, you are right. That's exactly what that is. And how fitting it is for Paul to conclude his letter with this expression of praise, this doxology, praising God in worship. Because he has shown us from Romans 1 up until this point how great and mighty and awesome and true is our God. But notice something interesting about this doxology. So he starts there in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And the final expression of praise comes in verse 27. So now to him who is able to strengthen you, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's clear that Paul is worshiping God, participating in that purpose for which he has created all things. But how does Paul get to that expression of praise? He does it by bringing the Romans in to that same worship of God because sandwiched between the beginning of that phrase and the end in verse 27 is this summary, this rehearsal of all the book of Romans, of the gospel. And what he says here is that God is building his church as a new temple, a new place where he meets with his people to give them life and peace and joy and hope forever as they worship and enjoy him. So that all that was lost in the fall into sin is now restored as we worship Christ and worship God through him. That's what Paul means when he says that God is able to strengthen you. He's using a term of construction. Literally, it's, it's edification. It's the construction of an edifice, a structure, a temple. And so he says, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, this church of God as a new temple is built up. And that great mystery of the gospel is now revealed and declared to all the nations that God saves a people for himself and builds them into a new temple from all nations who worship him, who come to the obedience of faith in accordance to God's sovereign command. You see, in rehearsing this final amen to the Romans, He's inviting them to come and worship with him. He's inviting them into this doxology to sing God's praises with him. And that same invitation he's holding out to you and I. When we, through Jesus, come to God and worship, we join together with Timothy and Phoebe and Adronicus and Junia and every other saint of God we see throughout the scriptures for all the saints of all time are being built together into this temple to the praise of God's great name. Yes, if you are united to Jesus Christ, your life is part 
of this gospel postscript, of this postscript of the greatest story ever told, the true story of how God, through Jesus, saves a people from Satan and sin and death so that he might praise him and enjoy him forever. And so then, fellowship together and thus build one another up by proclaiming to each other you are part of a new family. And heed the warning, the gospel warning, to watch and to avoid all those who would seek to divide the church and turn you away from looking to that new focus that is yours upon Jesus Christ and his victory that he has through you. And worship together to participate in the preparation of God's new temple, which will fill all the earth. Yes, you, church, are part of this great gospel postscript. And it's still being written. And it will go on and on for all eternity until that last amen sounds on earth and in comes the new heavens and the new earth with the coming of Jesus, our King. And when that happens, it's only the beginning of the greatest eternal moment that we can know, that joy of fellowship with God forever. And so let us then heed this postscript and show a gospel welcome, hear the gospel warning, and sing together in gospel worship. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for its truth. We ask that you would continue to impress upon us the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have made us your people. Help us to show fellowship and love and encourage one another, building each other up. Help us to be careful that we follow only Jesus, that we understand your word as truth and that we guard our hearts and guard our lives and our families from those who would seek to turn us away from him. Preserve us and protect us by your grace. And Father, help us to worship you with all of our heart and soul and mind on your day, this day, the Lord's day, and every day of our lives till Christ our King comes. We pray this in Jesus' name.